You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 21, for June 29th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and situations, including adult language and the use of recreational drugs. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. I am Chris Lester, your host and the creator of Metamore City, and I just got back from a very exciting trip out to the San Francisco Bay Area. I told you last time about that job interview I was going for, where I had to give a sample biology lesson to a group of high schoolers. I'm pleased to report that the lesson went very well. I had the teens dissect kidneys and talk to them a bit about how the kidneys work, what can make them malfunction, and what we can do to treat it when they stop working. It was a fun lesson, and the students really seemed to get into it. After the lesson was over, the principal picked out three of the students and had them interview me, picking out questions from a list of 20 while the current teacher watched and took notes. After I left, the principal debriefed them, and all three students recommended that they hire me. So yes, things are definitely looking good. By the time the next episode comes out, I should definitely be able to tell you whether I've got the job. In the meantime, I've started hunting for a place to live in the Bay Area. I'll keep you posted on how that turns out. We interrupt this podcast to bring you this special report. Hey there, Metamorphs! I'm recording this addendum on the morning of Saturday, June 29th, and it's official. I got the job. They sent me the contract last night, and I've signed it and sent it back to them. So, as of this August, I will be officially a charter school science teacher in Oakland, California. Stay tuned to this podcast and chrislester.org for further details. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program. Before we get into today's episode, I have to thank my cast and crew, especially my assistant producer, Bill Bowman. This episode would never have made it out on time if it weren't for his help. If you go over to the metamorecity.com website and click on Cast and Crew up at the top on the menu bar, you'll see that I've added a list of all the people who are helping to make this show happen. Huge thanks to all of you wonderful ladies and gents, without whom this podcast would be in pretty big trouble. I know I'm going to be depending upon you guys even more as I head out to Cali and get started on this new career. If any of you listeners out there have experience with audio editing software and would like to help with the production of the show, send me an email at feedback at metamorecity.com. We'll be happy to let you share in the magic of spending hours on end tweaking files in Audacity. Yay! Okay, let's get on with today's episode. This is Chapter 13 of Making the Cut. Here is the story so far. In our last episode, Daniel Sharabi went to see Artax, the wizard who made the potion that has temporarily turned him into an androgyne. Daniel's alter ego, Danny, had exhibited a disturbing loss of control with her date, Jared, and Daniel feared that someone was messing with Danny's mind. Artax had Daniel turn back into Danny, then ran her through a series of tests. To her astonishment, he determined that her libido had not been altered beyond the normal bounds of the androgyne curse, nor was there any sign of telepathic alteration in her cerebral cortex. With both the physical body and the conscious intellect eliminated as potential culprits, 
Artax concluded that Danny's behavior must have been triggered by a change at the deepest level of her identity, a change in her very soul. Danny wondered how anyone could change her soul, and Artax admitted that he didn't know either. He then suggested that perhaps Danny had brought this change on herself, that her need for belonging was so deep that she had immediately latched on to Jared, the first man she met with whom she could safely have sex. Danny was depressed at the thought that she might have turned herself into a raving slut, but Artax pointed out that this was probably better than the alternative, that there was someone out there with the power to change people's souls without leaving any trace of magical or telepathic evidence. During the bus ride home, Danny rationalized this change in her personality, concluding that the slut was a negative stereotype that really didn't have any justification for it. In holding out for a relationship with Daniel's childhood sweetheart, Rebecca, he and Danny had only caused themselves more pain. When she got home, Danny immediately called up Jared, telling him that she wanted to see him right away. Meanwhile, Elder Miriam Bakhtivar has been trying to locate Abby Preston, a telepathic prodigy who ran off with Victor when he left the hive. She's also offered her support to Brian Summers and the other members of his breeding cell. Almost two weeks ago, they failed to recover a package of top-secret research files, which were being smuggled into the city by the Vampire Crime Syndicate. Now, Brian has a plan to get the data back, but to do it, they'll have to break into one of the most secure facilities in the city. Needless to say, they need all the help they can get. Chapter 13 Wednesday, June 5th Any news? Miriam could practically hear the young man fidgeting on the other end of the phone line. I'm afraid not, ma'am. I've put out observers all over the city, everywhere we can manage it. There's no sign of them. He hesitated. Permission to speak freely, ma'am? Granted. This would be a whole lot easier if we could use our powers, ma'am. Give me a few good espers and permission to use them, and we could find the girl in three days tops. No, Peter. Abby Preston is ESP sensitive. Not heavily so, but enough to know if she's being tracked. If she tells Victor about it, he'll take her even further off the grid. I don't want to risk her being unable to come home again when she decides that she needs to do so. <sighs> Understood, ma'am. We'll do everything we can to find her. I've no doubt. Miriam looked up at the number on the apartment door in front of her. She nodded to herself. She was in the right place. Tell your agents to check in verbally every 12 hours. If they make a positive identification, have them call me immediately. Don't send anything through the mind links, Peter. This operation does not exist, understand? Uh, understood, ma'am. Peter sounded deeply unhappy, but she knew that he would do as she asked. Good man. I'll speak to you in three days if there's no other news. Bakhtavar out. She tapped a button on her wireless headset and ended the call. The door was already in the process of opening when she reached up to knock. The young pregnant woman who held it open for her lowered her eyes and smiled shyly as Miriam looked at her. Hello, Rebecca, Miriam said, her voice gentle. Were you listening just now? Rebecca looked mortified. What? Oh, no, 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 mistress. I would never eavesdrop on you, ma'am. She blushed furiously. I just channeled you where the door is all. Miriam put a hand on the younger woman's shoulder. It's all right. Are the others here? Rebecca nodded. Everybody's inside, ma'am. She stepped aside and held the door for Miriam as she entered the apartment.
Brian and the other wives got up from the couches in the living room and bowed to her in greeting. The last person in the room, a teenaged girl with unkempt hair, remained perched on the back of one of the overstuffed chairs, her feet resting on the seat cushion. She eyed Miriam with a mixture of wariness and curiosity. Brian, Fiona, Sasha, Miriam said, nodding to each of them in turn. Elder Bakhtavar, Brian said. Thank you for coming. Of course. She turned to the mundane girl and gave her a full bow from the waist. And you must be Kelly. Brian tells me that your assistance has been invaluable. On behalf of all my people, I thank you. The corner of Callie's lip twitched, but it didn't quite turn into a smile. At last, she nodded to Miriam, not taking her eyes off of her. Miriam supposed that it was as close to showing proper manners as she was going to get from the girl. Well, hey, Callie said, shrugging with obvious discomfort. Thank me when we get through this, right? We aren't even within five clicks of the hard part yet. So I have gathered. Miriam sat down in one of the chairs and faced the others, clasping her hands in front of her. Rebecca followed her into the living room and took a seat between Brian and Sasha, her dark eyes wide and troubled. Miriam looked at each of them in turn. I won't waste time with speeches. You know as well as I that the Hive has made more than its share of missteps in recent months. I bear some of the blame for those mistakes myself. Now, if the Great Maker wills it, I shall help to set right the things that can still be mended. Tell me what you have learned about this vault. Briefly, they described the storage facility at Viscount Security Solutions and the three layers of defenses around it. Miriam noticed that Callie's eyes kept shifting between herself and the door. With her psi-enhanced senses, Miriam could smell the girl's nervous agitation, and she heard her heartbeat quicken every time that Miriam looked at her. Interesting. It's not the defenses on the vault itself that worry me. The problem is how we're going to get to the vault in the first place. Viscount closes her business at 6pm, and the whole office goes into lockdown mode. We're talking about lead-lined blast doors, cold wrought iron tracing inside the walls, defensive wards bound into mithril. The whole place is a black box, Callie said. No form of magical surveillance can penetrate it. I'm not sure if it affects psi powers the same way. Brian grimaced. Unfortunately, yes. The wards probably aren't an issue, unless they're specifically keyed for psi, but lead and mithril will block just about any psi power I know of. Sasha nodded, smiling apologetically at Brian. I won't be able to coordinate you once you're inside. Miriam felt a sudden wave of anxiety coming from Rebecca. Does that mean your powers won't work when you're inside? No, they should work fine, but the walls of the office will act like a black hole. We won't be able to communicate telepathically with anyone on the outside, and you won't be able to see what we're doing in there. Can you bypass the defenses electronically? Brian shook his head. No, that's what I meant when I said it goes into lockdown. From 6 p.m. until 7 a.m. the next business day, no one can get into the complex unless someone opens the doors from the inside. Malcolm Ardvalos himself couldn't get in. Miriam looked into his eyes for a long moment before sitting back in the chair. You have a plan. We do, Brian said, exchanging a glance with Fiona. But not one we can pull off without help. Go on. Well, like we said, getting in after closing is a no-go. We could try to infiltrate Viscount directly, put one of our people on the inside, but that would take months, and we'd run the risk of them being caught and interrogated. Or worse, Fiona said darkly. Or worse. 
If the Hive's suspicions about the package are accurate, we don't have that kind of time. Our best bet is to get someone inside during normal business hours as a prospective customer, then make sure Viscount loses track of them. Which is no cakewalk either. Every visitor gets an electronic ID badge from the receptionist, and their names and contact info are all logged in a database. Every time one of those badges walks through a doorway, the system makes a note of it, so they can track your movements anywhere in the office. At the end of the day, a security op checks that log and makes sure everyone's out before they lock it down. Miriam turned to Brian. I assume that you are volunteering yourself to act as the hidden agent? Brian shrugged. There's no one better suited to it. I can trick the system into opening one of the doors without setting off any alarms. Can you also edit the security records to make it appear that you've left? I can, but we also have to deal with the human element. If I'm there by myself or with a small group, the employees are going to remember me. It won't matter if the computer says I'm gone if they see four people walk into the office and three people walk out. We're going to need a big group of accomplices on this. At least a dozen, so that casual observers won't be able to keep track of all of our faces. We can bring in a big tour group. I slip away and hide, and the others cover for me if anyone notices I'm gone. Then the tour group leaves, the facility gets locked down for the night, and I let in the safe-cracking team. I understand. What about security cameras? I should think that someone will notice if the blast door is open, and causing a glitch in the camera feed would be nearly as suspicious. There's another way inside. Even Viscount has to follow Imperial safety regs. There are emergency exits in different parts of the office to make sure that they can evacuate everybody if they need to. They're still being watched, but not as closely. The off-site security ops probably won't notice if Brian loops the feed. Miriam took a deep breath, let it out again, and finally nodded. All right. Fiona, Sasha, what's your assessment of the plan? The two women exchanged a look, and Fiona spoke for both of them. The odds are favorable, provided that we have access to the necessary personnel and equipment. And provided that we have a fast, secure way of getting them out of there afterwards, Sasha said. Brian picked up a data card and a computer printout that had been sitting on an end table. This is a summary of what we need, Brian said as he handed the sheet to Miriam. The specs and mission details are on the data card. Miriam glanced at the summary sheet. She winced at some of the equipment listed there. Much of it was military-grade hardware. I can manage this, she told them. But it's going to take time. A couple of weeks at least. Sasha frowned. For the last mission, the Elder Goddess disguise charms, fake IDs, and a non-detection scroll in less than 24 hours. I can't use my capacity as an Elder for this. If I do, the other Elders will take notice. The hive may forbid me from helping you. Rebecca bristled, looking both angry and hurt. Callie shook her head and snorted. Sasha bit her lip and looked away, while Fiona stared at Miriam, her cool green eyes betraying nothing. Brian spoke for them all. I think we'd like to hear an explanation for that, Elder Bakhtavar. Miriam sighed and gave them all an apologetic look. <sighs> Recent events have divided opinions within the Hive. The group mind is conflicted on how to proceed. Some believe that we should launch an immediate offensive against the Vampire Syndicate before they can use whatever biological weapons their foreign partners have developed for them. Others believe we should inform the government. A third faction believes that we should work quietly to find out what the Syndicate has developed and avoid doing anything rash. 
I don't get it. I thought the whole point of this group mind thing was to make unanimous decisions easier. It is, and it does, but unanimous decisions require a solid understanding of the facts and their implications. In the absence of solid data, all we have to fall back on are our opinions. Callie smirked. And opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, and most of them are full of shit. Miriam grimaced at the girl's coarse language, but she nodded. Essentially, yes. Often a strong personality can sway others to agree with his or her opinion, but in this case the situation is controversial enough that we have several prevailing views vying for acceptance. And in the meantime, nothing gets done, Brian said, sounding disgusted. So what does this have to do with freezing us out? I'm afraid that none of the major factions trust you at the moment. You, Fiona, and Sasha all served under Victor Hinkavos during his time with the Military Intelligence Directorate. You are on record as three of his favorite operatives. She looked down at her hands. With Victor's recent departure from the Collective, many of the elders have allowed certain negative feelings to color their perceptions of anyone associated with him. A ripple of confusion ran through the room. I don't get it, Sasha said, frowning. Victor caught the rogue Teep who killed Dell and Trace. He got the Elder's blessing to retire. Why would they be angry at him? Miriam hesitated, debating how much to tell them. When Victor left us, he did not leave alone, she said at last. Unbeknownst to the rest of the Hive, he had fostered a relationship with one of the students at Westfall, and he apparently persuaded her to join him. She pressed her lips together and felt her eyes narrow at the memory of the two letters they'd found in Abby's room. The girl in question was possibly the strongest telepath we've ever had at Westfall. Callie covered her mouth, and Miriam heard her suppress a snicker. She resisted the urge to snap at the girl for her rudeness. Mannerless street rat that she was, they still needed her. Sasha reached up to her neck and clasped the silver yew tree that hung there. Elder Bakhtavar, how the hell is it that we never heard anything about this? A sexual relationship with a student is a huge breach of conduct on Kano Victor's part. Why hasn't anyone gone after them and dragged his ass in front of a tribunal? Miriam sighed. We can't prove the relationship was sexual before she left. And even if we could, I fear it will endanger the child's life if we pursue them too openly. We are taking steps to find the girl, but it has to remain quiet for now. The only reason I mention it is because you were three of Victor's favorites, and the ill will he has created with the elders is filtering down to you. The elders can't believe that we had anything to do with Victor taking that girl. Of course not, but the fear is that his rebellious attitudes may have been transferred to you by your long association with him. I'm afraid your defense of Josephine Matthews has been seen as a bad sign. Sasha scoffed. Don't tell me you agree with what they're doing to her. I appreciate their motives, but I take issue with their methods. In any case, we know that Josephine recently received a large sum of money from an unnamed source. This has allowed her to remain outside direct involvement in the collective, which the Hive had hoped to avoid. No one knows who made the donation, but your cell was at the top of the list of potential suspects. Brian and his wives exchanged astonished glances. I'm sorry, Elder, but we don't know anything about this. We've been discussing ways that we might be able to help Joe and her daughter, but... He shook his head. It's all right, Miriam said, raising a hand. You don't have to tell me anything. 
Whether you were involved in this particular incident or not, it doesn't change our situation. I can help you to complete your mission, but I will need to be subtle and use my backdoor connections in order to do so. She raised the printed summary Brian had given her. I believe I can get you everything on this list. Just keep a low profile and give me time to do it properly. Brian and Sasha both nodded wearily. Fiona shifted in her seat and asked, What would you like us to do in the interim, mistress? Miriam blinked, mildly surprised by the woman's deferential tone. Gather all the information on Viscount that you can. Set up the false identities you intend to use and arrange for the tour of the Viscount office. She rose to her feet, and the others did likewise, with the exception of Callie. She looked at each of them in turn. This operation needs to be perfect. Successful completion of the mission objectives with no casualties. If we fail, the Hive will certainly break up your cell and strip away every privilege you've earned for yourselves in the last five years. And I myself will pay the price for my collusion. Callie raised her eyebrows. And you're still willing to stick your neck out, even with all that? Miriam raised her chin and looked the girl straight in the eyes. I am. We have been rudderless for too long. It is well past time for someone in the Hive leadership to begin leading. But doesn't that go against the whole idea of the Hive? Sasha asked. The elders are supposed to give counsel and the Hive mind decides. Miriam smiled humorlessly. Every ideal system breaks down eventually. And sometimes even a communal democracy needs to be protected from itself. Okay, good. Now hold that pose for just a few seconds. Great. All right, you can switch back. Danny let out a breath and relaxed, letting her body return to its more comfortable female form. It was getting easier to consciously control her transformations, but lately she could feel the strain of it when she returned to Daniel's old form. On some level, it was like her body knew that she was supposed to be a woman. She smiled. And why shouldn't it? I'm finally enjoying my life again. I'm even enjoying this. She arched her back and raised her hands above her head. Nathan changed positions and snapped a few more photos with his still camera. Very nice definition, he said, as he paused to adjust one of the lights in the makeshift studio. We've been wanting to study the effects of the curse on musculature, but it's hard to find test subjects who are toned enough to collect good data. Danny ran a hand over her taut, muscular stomach and smiled again. I guess all those hours in the Somnock are paying off then. Nathan grinned. Most definitely. Are you doing all right, Dee? Not too hot or anything. Danny shook her head. Kevin had allowed them to use his sanctum for Nathan's research project, and they had covered the walls with plain white sheets that made a stark contrast with Danny's skin. The adjustable spot lamps that Nathan had brought in made the room warmer than usual, but Danny found it comfortable enough. The fact that she wasn't wearing a stitch of clothing probably helped. It was funny, she thought. A few days ago, she would have been bothered by the thought of Nathan taking pictures of her naked. But ever since she had decided to stop fighting against her own subconscious desires, the desires of her spiritual mind, as Artax had called them, she found that things had become easier. Spending time with Jared seemed to help. He and Danny had gotten together each of the last three nights, and his wholehearted acceptance of her identity as a woman made it easier to accept it herself. Even Nathan's ogling gave her a little thrill at the knowledge of how desirable she was. To his credit, Nathan had been far more professional than Danny had expected. 
She could sense his lust for her every time his skin brushed against hers, but he had kept his urges to himself and focused on collecting the data his research group required. Even when he had recorded close-up images of Danny's genitals changing form, Nathan had kept a scientist's detachment through the entire process, despite the fact that his face was only a few decimeters from her exposed crotch. Danny had learned a few things about herself, too. The curse was more versatile than a simple on-off switch between male and female forms. If she thought about it, she could consciously control the degree of masculinity or femininity her body displayed. In the last few days, she had taken on the form of a slender, effeminate man, a boyish woman with small breasts and narrow hips, and a buxom sex pot with a dramatic hourglass figure. Her appearance wasn't the only thing that changed, either. She found that her sex drive was enhanced when she shifted to a more feminine form. According to the research Nathan had showed her, androgynes might even give off special pheromones when they were in their more extreme forms, pheromones that would increase the sexual receptivity of the people around them. I'll have to remember that, she thought, grinning at the possibilities that came to mind. Still, on the whole, she felt most comfortable in a form like the one she'd first changed into, athletic and slender, unmistakably feminine, without being a purely sexual object. Nathan took a few more photos, then nodded in satisfaction and turned off the spot lamps. That's enough for today. I need to pull these up on the computer and make sure everything's usable. Thanks again for doing this, Danny. Danny smiled and pulled on her robe. Not a problem. I'm actually having fun. Nathan blushed, grinning like a schoolboy. Excellent. Clutching his camera in one hand and his video recorder in the other, he ducked out of the sanctum and headed off to his bedroom. Kevin was leaning up against the wall next to the door when she came out. He smirked and nodded down the hallway in the direction Nathan had gone. Is he behaving himself? More than you would believe. She took a sip from her water bottle, then gestured toward the sanctum. I think we're done in there for now. I can get changed and clean things up if you're expecting a client. Take your time. Steven and I are going to a movie tonight. You got a call from Jared, by the way. Danny perked up immediately. Yeah? Kevin nodded. He says he's finished testifying at that competency hearing and he's free for the rest of the evening if you want to do something. Hmm. Danny murred happily and headed over to the telephone in the living room. Half a minute later, Jared was en route to the apartment. She put the headset back in its cradle and turned to find Kevin hovering a meter away. It is going well then, I take it. She gave him a self-satisfied smile and nodded once. Have you slept with him? Her smile faltered a little. Not yet, she admitted. Just a few kisses here and there. He's been a complete gentleman. Sometimes to a fault, she added silently. Kevin wasn't a telepath, but he must have read her thoughts and her expression. But you want to sleep with him. She felt herself blush, but she nodded. I've been, um, sort of fantasizing about it. It was true. They hadn't had another incident like the one at the Panoramic, but Danny's subconscious had been busy at night with thoughts of what she might like to do with Jared. Kevin sat down on the arm of one of the chairs and looked at her closely. And you're sure that this is you who wants this? It's not just the magic talking. She shook her head firmly. Our text checked that. This is a part of me, Kevin, deep down on the inside. I don't know how long it's been there, but it's there. And yeah, that's a little scary, but I'm only going to cause myself more pain if I deny it. I can't be afraid to embrace what I am. She shrugged. I learned that from watching you. 
Kevin closed his eyes for a moment and smiled. He came over to her and planted a gentle kiss on her forehead. Then I wish you the best. And I want you to have this. He pressed something into the palm of her hand. She looked down and saw a pendant attached to a leather cord. The wooden disc was about the size of a quarter mark and had a prominent protection glyph etched into one side. A birth control amulet? She asked, looking up at him. I picked it up for you on the way home from work, just in case you need it. Danny slipped the amulet around her neck, feeling a flush of excitement as she did so. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Impulsively, she leaned forward and planted a kiss on his cheek. He smiled and put a hand on her shoulder. Be careful, all right? She nodded, but her mind was already swimming with possibilities. She could hardly wait for Jared to arrive. He showed up at the door twenty minutes later. Danny let him inside and greeted him with a hug and a peck on the lips. Glad you could make it. That makes two of us, he said, grinning. Hey, Danny! Nathan called from his bedroom. Come here a second, will you? Jared gave her a questioning look. She shrugged and headed down the hallway. Come on, you may as well meet my flatmates. Nathan was waiting for her with a computer printout and a pen. This is a release form. I need you to sign this before I can upload the data to our server. Danny scanned over the legal text briefly. It seemed straightforward enough. She signed it and passed the sheet back to him. Thanks. We'll do another session whenever it's convenient for you. His eyes drifted over to a spot above Danny's shoulder. So, is this our lucky friend from Metamore's Finest? Oh, sorry. Jared, this is Nathan Levy, our resident computer genius. Nate, this is Jared Tamlin. Nathan offered his hand to Jared. Pleased to meet the man who won the heart of our fair bell, he said, grinning amiably. Jared took his hand and clasped it briefly, but there was no warmth in the gesture. His eyes scanned the room, and Danny could see a tightening at their corners. How do you do? Nathan's smile slowly faded. Well, um, pretty well, I think. I've never had any complaints. He laughed, and there was no mistaking the nervousness in the sound. Danny looked back and forth between them, confused. What was Jared's problem? Jared smiled politely at Nathan's joke. Fair enough. So, how old are you, Nathan? His tone of voice was almost too casual. Nathan cleared his throat and scratched the bridge of his nose. Um, 23. Ah. Jared glanced upward, and now Danny saw what he was looking at one of the many posters of scantily clad women that covered the walls and ceiling of Nathan's room. Oh. She thought. Danny touched his shoulder. Jared, hun, we should get going. Jared took her hand and smiled. I'll be right along. Why don't you go ahead and get your shoes and I'll meet you at the door in a second. The touch of his skin against hers created a telepathic contact and she heard his unspoken thought. I need to have a word with this guy. Be nice she said firmly, then broke the contact and went to her room to retrieve her shoes and purse. As promised, Jared met her at the door a moment later. What was that about? she asked once they were outside. He grimaced. I just told him that he ought to be more thoughtful about how he decorates. It's disrespectful for him to have all those girly pictures plastered everywhere. Women should not be treated like sex objects. I could forgive it if you were a teenager, but the man's 23 years old. He needs to grow up. Danny frowned. You shouldn't judge him before you've gotten a chance to know him, Jared. Nate's a nice guy. 
Okay, maybe he's a little horny, but he's a gentleman in the ways that really matter. She put a hand on his arm. Don't bring it up again, all right? I don't need you to protect me. She smirked. I was a horny guy once, too, remember? He ducked his head and grinned sheepishly. (laughs) You make it easy to forget sometimes. (sighs) Maybe you're right. Maybe I overacted. I care about you. I don't want you to have to live somewhere where you feel like you're being treated like a piece of meat. I apologize if I went too far. Danny kissed his cheek, then wrapped her arm around his. Apologize to Nate later. For now, I'm taking you out for a change. Danny directed Jared to an apartment complex near the grounds of Empire University on the second level of the city. Next to the main entrance to the complex was an old-fashioned wooden door that opened onto a set of stairs leading downward. Danny held the door open for Jared, and the sounds of music and conversation drifted up from below. She gave him a grin and a wink. After you. The walls were made of red and brown bricks, while the floor and ceiling were dark polished wood. A large white sign greeted them at the first landing. Private property. Class B substances in use. The owner of this establishment hereby gives notice of consent to the use of Class B controlled substances on the premises. Any person entering herein is understood as having given tacit consent to the use of these substances in his slash her presence, and indemnifies the proprietor and his slash her fellow patrons of any responsibility for the associated risks of exposure. City of Metamore Civil Code, Title 11, Chapter 13, Section 27B. Jared raised an eyebrow at Danny. You're taking me to a smoking parlor? Her grin got even wider. It's much more than that. Come on. The stairs turned left at the landing and descended one more flight, emerging onto a small vestibule with a single spotlight overhead. Arched doorways to the front and right revealed dimly lit rooms with booths and tables. To the left lay a coat room and a wooden podium. A short blonde woman with a ponytail and a mole on her left cheek looked up at them with a serious expression. I'm sorry, but we're closed for a private engagement. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Even as she spoke the words, though, she was also broadcasting a telepathic message, which even Danny's faint senses could detect. Welcome to the cellar. If you can hear this, then tell me the name of the common bond that unites us. The hive is the bond that unites us all. She tapped the side of her head. Sorry, I'm not very good at transmitting. The blonde woman's expression immediately changed from grave to cheerful. She stepped forward and clasped Danny's hand. Not a problem. You're one of us, and that's all that matters. I'm Lindy. Danny, this is Jared. Lindy took Jared's hand as well. I haven't seen you in here before. It's my first time. And it's my first time in a while. Well, you're always welcome. Cabs and cigs are for sale at any of the bars, and we also have a limited supply of shimmer that's fresh from the labs in Marigand. Jared frowned. Shimmer? Mild cyanhancer. It's not as toxic as Mad John, or as dangerous as Brimstone. Mostly it makes it easy to enter gestalts. Most people also experience side effects similar to essence. Euphoria, a heightened sense of empathy, an improved sense of touch. She waggled her eyebrows. Very popular for lovers. Downsides? Lindy shrugged. Some people have trouble sleeping when they're coming down. Unless you take it with alcohol, in which case you're going to crash pretty hard pretty fast. Not really dangerous though, unless you're trying to drive or something. Let's see, um, don't use it if you're on antidepressants or if you've got high blood pressure. 
Also, you should stick to decaf if you decide to take it. The pills are high purity, 150 mils apiece, so we're limiting it to one dose per customer. Danny nodded. How much? 25 marks. Believe me, if you've got plans to get naked later, it's worth every cent. Danny and Jared looked at each other and blushed. We'll think about it. Thanks for the info. No problem. Enjoy your stay. Danny led Jared into the room opposite the staircase. The tables and booths were arranged in a U-shape around a low stage, where a group of musicians played eclectic-sounding melodies on instruments collected from at least three continents. Fans hung from low ceilings over walls that were half brick and half wood paneling. A coffee bar ran along one side of the room, and the sound of the grinders and steam wands mingled with the music and the low undercurrent of conversation. Jared put his arm around Danny and leaned in close to her ear. This is hive-owned, isn't it? The cellar? It's a play on words, like the cells in a honeycomb. Danny nodded. Becca and I used to come down here when we were at uni. It's a pretty mellow scene. Judging from the amount of cannabis I'm smelling in here, I don't doubt it. Danny shrugged. Private property, Jay. It's all legal. He ran a hand over his chin. One of the other drugs she mentioned? Shimmer? I've never heard of it. And cops hear about everything. Wouldn't be the first time we kept something away from the Mundies, would it? She crossed her arms. Look, if you're not comfortable with it, we can just go. I wouldn't want you to see anything you'd have to report later. Jared sighed and rubbed the bridge of his nose. (sighs) I'm sorry, Danny. I'm not trying to ruin the evening. It's just... I've never spent much time at Class B clubs. Section 27B always felt like a loophole to me. Comes with being a cop, I guess. He shrugged. But I've never really felt welcome in Hive territory, either. Danny stepped in close to him and put her arms around his neck. I know. Just give it a chance, okay? I'm not going to ask you to try Shimmer if you don't want to, but let's at least get some coffee and dessert and listen to the music for a while. Jared smiled and kissed her. Okay. I'm up for that. They went over to the coffee bar, where they ordered lattes and an odd sort of chocolate and raspberry pastry that looked big enough to share. The employees and the other customers were all as warm and friendly as Lindy had been, and Danny chatted with them about the latest gossip while they waited for their drinks. She introduced Jared to them, and everyone welcomed him without hesitation as a fellow spooky. Danny was amused by the irony of the situation. If she had come in here as Daniel, both he and Jared would have been treated with pity, if they were noticed at all. Now that she was a woman, though, it didn't matter how weak her powers were. She was a teep and a woman, and that made her an automatic VIP in Hive society. As for Jared, he was here on the arm of a beautiful woman, and if she thought he was worthy of her time, then there must be something special about him. The longer they talked with the people around them, the more Jared relaxed. Danny could see the tension draining out of his shoulders, and that sparkle she loved coming back into his eyes. He seemed to finally understand that he was being accepted here, and it gave Danny a warm, glowing feeling inside that she was able to give him that gift of acceptance, just by his being here with her. It was a gift that Daniel never could have had for himself, and that made it all the more precious. Eventually they found a little booth with a good view of the stage and cuddled up next to each other to listen. Jared reached into his pocket and pulled out a cab, which he offered to Danny. She looked at him in surprise. I thought you didn't approve. He shrugged. It occurred to me that everyone here is part of the collective. So, in a way, you could say that this is just an extended family gathering. He pulled out a lighter and lit the end of the cab. And sharing a cab at a family reunion isn't going to hurt anyone. 
Smiling, Danny nestled in close to Jared and took a hit from the cab. As the sweet herbal scent of cannabis spiraled around them, she closed her eyes and let the music carry her away. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. <laughs> this ought to teach him. 
evening, Brownie. <gasps> How about you step away from the axe? I am not a brownie. I am a fae. Fae? Wait a second. Robin Goodfellow. Ah, so you know of Peck the Trickster. Yeah, I know you. Acrianus, the Giddy Galleon, a dice game. Remember me? Oh, <laughs> Billy Bob Beddings. Of course. Kind of rude, don't you think, to come calling on an old friend from the stomping grounds and just help yourself to his weapons. Sounds like trouble. Well, you started it. Beg your pardon? You stole a scribe's birthday. My cousin's scribe. The Dark Goddess isn't pleased you're releasing your new adventure on 080808. That's why the promo's called Billy's Crazy Eights Shifter. August 8th is when the case of the pitcher's pendant is out on Amazon.com, and I'm looking for listeners to give up the greenbacks for the dwarf detective. Well, aren't we feeling a bit full of ourselves, Scrappy? Or perchance you do not know that Digital Magic, the sequel to Chasing the Bard, will also be available for purchase on August 8th. <laughs> Happy birthday, Pip! Two sequels to two award-nominated books available on the same date? Like I said, sounds like trouble. Yes, double trouble. On August 8th, 2008, show your support for The Dwarf Detective, The Bay Trickster, and Podcast Fiction. Purchase your copies of The Case of the Pitcher's Pendant by T. Morris and Digital Magic by Philippa Ballantyne on Amazon.com. We've seen the days of the FDO and Palm's Daddy. Now comes 8808, the day of double trouble. All right, so we're working together. Behave. You think you can make me? I got Beatrice here. What do you got? Not bad, Shifter. Not bad. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. Erebus, book one, Rebirth. A brand new horror podcast novel. Follow Steve Fargo as he struggles with humanity, evolution, and the living embodiment of chaos. A breakthrough science discovery opens his mind to a primordial evil, and it's angry. So join the terror and listen to Erebus at ColinFrancisBarnes.com. Hi, this is Jack Hosley, a.k.a. The Wander Wolf from Wander Radio at WanderRadio.com. And you're listening to Metamorph City. And we're back. Thanks again to all of my cast members, including our two newcomers, Steve Rickyberg, who played Miriam's assistant, Peter, and Pawari Nan, who played Lindy. Welcome to the team, both of you. Our featured music at the end of the chapter was In the Circle by Hungry Lucy. I knew from the moment I heard this song that I had to include it in this episode, because it so perfectly captures the spirit of the Psy Collective. If you'd like to hear more by Hungry Lucy, check out their website at HungryLucy.com. You also heard Alice in Wonderland by Emma Wallace. Big thanks to Jared Axelrod of The Voice of Free Planet X for turning me on to this artist. 
You can find her music at imemma.com. We've gotten a lot of positive response to episode 20. Bloodworth said that it reminded him of Joss Whedon's stuff, which is very high praise in my book, so thank you very much for that. The podcasting uber-nemesis, T. Morris, left me this comment. Lester, it's me. Remember what I told you about raising the bar? You're doing it again. I told you how much this displeases me. Do not tempt the wrath of the uber-nemesis. Hell of an episode, bro. Seriously, you're kicking ass and taking names. Keep it up, Chris. Thanks, T. And as you so accurately stated at Balticon, I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you. So, really, you've got no one to blame but yourself, right? I also got this voicemail message. Hey, Chris. This is Nobilis calling again. Just listened to the most recent episode where Evan and Danny visit Artex. I must say, in addition to the wonderful technical and voice acting work that shows up in Metamar City, Making the Cut continues to surprise me with plot twists that I had not considered. The, uh, the, the, the moment where Danny hangs up, basically, on his, her relationship with uh, Rebecca really caught me off guard. But at the same time, it's entirely believable. I'm very impressed. Bye. Thank you, Nobilis. It's a lot of fun writing for these characters, and I'm glad that they've been able to act in a believable way and still surprise you. Rest assured that there are plenty more twists and turns yet to come. If you'd like to send in feedback, you can email your comments in audio or text to feedback at metamorecity.com, or you can call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333. You can also leave comments on the website or participate in the discussion forums, which are over at thecursed.org. If you want to help spread the word about Metamore City, you can post about us on your blog or leave a review on iTunes. We've gotten a number of great reviews over there during the last few months, and we're now about halfway up page two in iTunes literature section. So a big thanks to everybody who helped out with that. Let's keep pushing those reviews and see if we can get up to page one, all right? That'll do it for this episode. I'll talk to you again on July 13th. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.